My name is Simon Garfield. I'm the author of Dog's Best Friend, A Brief History of an Unbreakable Bond. And I'm on John Little Fair's podcast, Never Just the Dog. Whereabouts in Oz are you? I'm in Perth. Great. I've actually been to Perth. Um, I was there on a literary festival, the Perth Literary Festival, about, I don't know, eight years ago, seven years ago. Um, and I can't even remember what book I was, I think I was talking about maps or maybe a book about time. Who knows? There's so many. Sorry to hear about you losing Ludo. Well, thanks. I mean, we had Ludo almost 14 years and he was a, a, a small black uh, Labrador, one of, you know, a million in the UK, I think. And obviously unbelievably special to us. And um, he, there's a bit of a personal history, but actually he comes into this. So I've been with my, my wife, who is my second wife, for... 14 years or 15 years really now and she had kids of her own and we thought well one of the things that would bond me with her kids would be to get a dog and they've always wanted a dog I've always grown up with dogs so I knew sort of how to bring a dog into a family and so he, he was you know he was kind of an instant hit I became more of a hit because of him and he really was the sort of punctuation, I suppose, you know, in, in, in so much of our life over the last um, 14 years. And he had, a, he had a, a great life. He lived sometimes with us in uh, the middle of London, in fact, sort of 80% of the time with us in uh, London near Hampstead Heath. So I don't know if any of your listeners will, will, will kind of know of Hampstead Heath. It's sort of the second biggest open air park in uh, London, second to Richmond Park. And so he spent a huge amount of time there, a little bit of time in the country in Hampshire, a little bit of time with friends when we went on holiday. And yeah, I mean, absolutely integral part of our life. And he had epilepsy, like a lot of Labradors do. I mean, a lot of dogs do as well, obviously. But so that was a, a thing. And he only developed that about, gosh, I think three or four years into his life. And then every month or so, he would have a fit. And it was a pretty, you know, terrifying thing. It's a bit like watching a human have a fit. So, you know, falling to the ground, foaming, became incontinent, you know, all those things. And when you, and bearing teeth and then taking a while to recover and then having more energy, it's like being rewired, really, or rebooted, I suppose. And at the first time he had one, we were just terrified. We thought, we were going to lose him and then he recovered and then it became a pattern and then he went on pills and all that kind of stuff and that was fine and then the last two 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 or three years of his life he didn't have any more uh, which was extraordinary as well and no you know people vets specializing in this really don't understand how some dogs get it some dogs don't why some people get it others don't don't quite understand what brings it on you know all those kind of things that so much we don't know 
so that was, you know, something that, that marked him out. Um, he would make a lot of friends because sometimes he would just collapse on the street and people got so terribly concerned and he would be there for about an hour or so before he um, he recovered. And, and so we made, <laughs> we made a lot of sort of just passing friends uh, there because they were all obviously terribly concerned about, about it. And he, um, he passed, I think it was probably now, it'll be almost a year so just shy of his 14th birthday. And it was a long life. And, you know, it was a, a pretty good life for a, a lab. And uh, in the end, we, we just had to let him go because he, there were just so many things that were kind of troubling him. And he became incontinent and he lost the, the use of his back legs, which is a, a very big thing. Again, I'm sure, you know, your listeners with um, uh, Labradors will know about hip dysplasia. So we had a bit of that as well. And, but he had, oh my gosh, I mean, this is, I, th- I think this is the first time that I've talked about his death because when the, the, the book came out in the UK about two years ago, and so he had just, he died between the hardback and the paperback of the book. So I could get it into the paperback and in the hardback, he was still very much alive. And so obviously when I was doing most of the, you know, most of my chats and for promotion for, for the book in the early days, he was very much alive and at, at my feet. This is the first time that I've, I've kind of talked about him, I think, after he, he died. And he had this most incredible last day where I've had I've had three dogs in the course of my life my experience in the past was taking a dog to the vet and him being put down at the vet and it was all very clear clinical and very cold and uh you know we were obviously in tears and and actually awful thing is then you leave the vet and you sort of face the real world and you've got to face people you know getting in that cars and you're totally distraught and in tears and you've just lost such an important part of your life uh, and and somehow you've got to face that but we had this woman with Ludo who came to our house connected to the vet you know fully um, qualified and um, very used to doing this and just put Ludo down in a lovely ceremony and a lovely process that lasted I guess about two hours or so and we did that classic thing you know we played a little bit of soft music pulled the curtains down put uh, lit some candles for him and everyone came to say goodbye so it was like a sort of living wake so all the people who loved him knew that he was going to go in the you know a day or two before so in the previous days people had come and said goodbye to him and he clearly had no idea what was going to befall him he just thought hang on these are all my favorite people what's happening here I guess and then in the last day the family gathered around and the immediate neighbors and I suppose the people who had walked him most to you know who who are who, who lived um, up our road and then they came and then in the end it was just us the last hour and you know we had an injection that basically made him very drowsy and then a final injection, and then he passed, and we were we were with him in his bed, which was so amazing, uh, in the living room, you know, in our front room, and so that was it. And, and you know, that's uh, so great to know that that can be the way to go, because I talk a lot in the book about our, our bond and, and how we 
how how dogs have become more kind of human, I suppose, and and take on more human traits because of our involvement. And this is another one, I suppose, because that is very much a kind of ideal human experience. So we obviously replicate what we see as an ideal end of life experience, uh, which is, you know, very calm. And then we get ashes. And that's something that, that we think about our own end as well. With such a huge loss with Ludo, what did the house feel like straight after in the days and weeks, months for you and your family? You know, as I explained, it was a it was a slow build up. So the last sort of month or two, we knew he was on the way out, and and we, and we thought, well, it's just a question of when now. You know, we could have prolonged his life to another two or three weeks, or even a couple of months, I suppose. And we think, you know, was that a dignified thing for him? We thought not, and we also thought, well, it would be really lovely to have, you know, as I explained, a sort of control over the thing and something that he would be aware of, rather than a, a you know. A, maybe ending up at the vet, you know, which is something we didn't really want. Or him even dying of, you know, kind of overnight after a lot of pain, which we didn't want that. So we were able psychologically to prepare for life after him. And it was, I mean, I'm afraid, John, I can only just come up with all the kind of cliches. You know, it was a very empty house. The thing that I wasn't expecting so much were, was how it would affect our our own routine. So we we are we became so programmed over the years, as all dog owners do. You know, have a dog who lives a long life, hopefully. Of the dog, and I talk about this at the beginning of the book as well. You know, the dog dictating our daily regime and routine. So, you know, from the first meal of the day, to the first wee of the day, to the long walk in the morning, hopefully, you know, to making sure that someone is at home to, 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 to give him or her lunch, you know, all of those kind of routines. And then, you know, beyond that, you think of, okay, well, if we go to the theatre or see a movie, how's that going to be? You know? So you, you kind of, he's constant, he was constantly present in our mind. So first of all, not to have that was weird. And then, you know, just the thing, of our bodies get attuned to a long morning walk. So that was odd as well. Not, you know, we could still do that, but it was just very odd because we no longer had to do that. And we had certainly no longer had a companion. And then we would go with, you know, friends with their dogs. And so we didn't become part of that. And then the other thing, which was a complete surprise was how much physical space he took up, not, through his size but just through his being there at all so as you said John that the idea of a Labrador not being in the kitchen when food was being made was like you know never gonna happen you know he was gonna basically if we opened the fridge door which is quite a loud fridge door he would come from wherever he was and you know in the house it probably woke him up even if fridge food I'm coming and so basically <laughs> he um but he, he would always be under our feet I and mean, we we, we, we don't have a tiny kitchen. We've got like an average size kitchen. But my wife and I always kind of, you know, felt, but, you know, you, basically you're going to fall, almost fall over him because he was always there, sniffing around, wanting scraps, wanting treats, or just enjoying the smells, I guess. And um, so there was, that was weird, not to have him around whenever we, we made food. And then, you know, he used to sleep, at, at, you know, on the floor, but in our bedroom. And that again, so... 
whenever we got up and he, if he was asleep, especially towards the end of his life, he would sleep in. And we would always have to make sure that when we got out of bed that we didn't tread on him or wake him up. You know, And so that was weird as well, to take the bed away and then not have that little hurdle when we get up. You know, that that's kind of weird as well. And and then the routine, as I said, of, you know, getting up sometimes at, you know, half past six in the morning or seven in the morning if he was kind of needed a, a wee. And, and, you know, all those, all those things. And that took a long time. That was the spatial thing uh, in particular was, was a kind of the biggest surprise. And then there were also, and I, I, you know, if I'm honest, there were also some quite nice things as well that we did to rush back, you know, from from being you know in town and we we had a little bit more you could think about holidays now without having to think um of you know having you know packing up everything with him to send him to neighbors if he didn't come with us you know all those kind of things um so it, it was it, it was you know there were things that where we thought okay so this is interesting we we didn't quite realize how much part of our lives he'd, he'd been it's that classic you know it's that cliche you don't you don't really appreciate what you've got till it's gone but also you don't realize kind of how much of a of a of a, of a, of a total presence and you know he dictates it's not even that you know as i say at the beginning of the book you know he dictates when we have to be back it's not like we say maybe this is our fault he was definitely kind of in in charge and then to lose that Okay, so now who's who's now the boss in the in the in the home if it's not the dog? He was a grounding element, you know, in the in the way that um, you know kids can be a grounding element. You think you know until until one has kids, you may think okay, well, you're the only important person in the world. Then kids come along and they become the only important person in the world. Then your whole psychology changes, and you realise what your parents went through when they were bringing you up, and you appreciate them far more perhaps as well. And, uh, and and the dog is both the master and 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 the kid, you know, in the relationship. I, I think. And so you want one one has all those sort of responsibilities. And and you know, there's a there's a nice quote at the beginning of my my book from uh, a French writer called Roger Carras, and he says, if you don't own a dog, at least one, there is not necessarily anything wrong with you but there may be something wrong with your life. And um, I think that the feeling of that is, you know, dogs just give so much. And one of the things that they give is this feeling of, we are not necessarily the most important person in our own lives. And I think that's, that, that's true. There's something I'd like to read you from the book, if it's okay. Oh. And we're strangers only to ourselves. As dog owners and dog lovers, we are part of a huge community. And the bond we have with our dog is something that binds us equally to millions of others, a shared humanity. I love this. Dog lovers connect with other dog lovers. You know, the, the joke I always tell is that, you know, if I'm, if I'm with a dog, I, I, can, I can have the most sort of deep or trivial conversations with anyone that I pass. So, and these are dog owners or not. So obviously, if, if you see someone with an other dog, and uh, maybe you know them anyway, so that's great. So you fall in with them. If you don't know them, chances are you would have a nice conversation about their dogs, about their age and name, and and and, and you know maybe if you don't recognise the breed immediately, what breed, and you know just all the general lovely dog chats we have. 
um, and then obviously if you if you if you meet someone and, and you you have a, a dog who appears very friendly they want to come up and, and give uh, him or her a pat and ask about and say isn't he great and is he sweet and all, you know all those kind of things and as an owner one becomes just a very trustworthy nice person to chat to the minute you go out without a dog you could be anyone and no one wants to be and, and what is that about I mean, I'm, um, you know, I'm now CX62 and I'm incredibly happily married. Uh, if I didn't, if I wasn't married, uh, if I wasn't married, if I was looking for a partner, the dog would be the ideal conversation, uh, sort of, you know, icebreaker in, in a way, because everyone talks to you. And why it is that, become, or that one becomes, you know, a trustworthy person rather than a person who might be a bit suspicious or a bit dodgy without a dog I suppose it comes down to the fact that you know <laughs> this doesn't necessarily true but the idea is that if you have a dog therefore you are either a nice person or a responsible person or someone who uh, as I said before kind of realizes that, that maybe there are more important things in life than, than just oneself and it, maybe it is the same with kids I think I think it is really I think you know you go out walking with with a, a young child and you, you become a and a responsible adult in the world rather than any old bloke. But even it's funny because, um, you know, so almost always when I was walking on Hampstead Heath, it, it was with Ludo. So that was the case when I was writing the book and thinking about dogs. So I would talk to people that I knew in particular and say, well, I'm writing this book and, you know, what are your thoughts and tell me your experiences and, you know, everything else. And that would be fine. But occasionally, if I, again, you know, if I went up to someone and without Ludo and said I was writing a book, they would kind of think, well, who is this person, you know, unless they knew, knew me, you know, uh, pretty much immediately. I'm sure you've experienced this, John, as well, that, you know, are you going to get another one, you know, and, 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 and or, or sometimes when are you going to get another one if they know that, you know, we, we love dogs and had dogs all our life. And that's an interesting question. And, and it sort of, I don't quite know the answer to that personally yet, but I'm like, like you, I'm really sure that we will get one eventually. We're, we're thinking maybe what we'll do is enjoy our sort of newfound freedoms for a bit, because this is pretty much, well, certainly because the last dog I had died when he was, he was 10. He was a, a yellow lab called Chewy and he had cancer very early and then he had a, the last year of his life was was kind of very hard. And then we got Ludo pretty soon after that. So for pretty much 25 years now, 24 years, I've, I've, I've had dogs. And it's quite nice to have a little bit of, of freedom as well. And then it makes you appreciate a dog even more, I think. But I think within about, I don't know, I mean, it's, it's hard to tell because there were so many different circumstances at play, you know, in terms of kids leaving home and, and, and where we're going to live and, you know, all those kind of things. Uh, but I reckon within five years, we'll, if not before that. The continuance of your <laughs> dog love journey. What was the decision to begin writing the book? Okay, well, there were, there were sort of two elements to it. One is uh, I had lunch with my editor, whatever it was, four years ago or five years ago, and we were talking about what I should do next. And I've, I've written a whole load of things, but they tend to be, you know, I began as a journalist, and then I realised as a journalist, one could never really get to the bottom of the subject. So even if, you know, even if one wrote a 4,000 word feature for a magazine or something, you always felt you were only sort of scratching the surface really. So 
then I began doing books and, and they t- tended to be books about things that I had passions about. So I wrote a book about typefaces called Just My Type. And I wrote a book about maps and I wrote a book about uh, the history of AIDS in Britain. Some serious books, some not so serious. Anyway, so we, we, we were having a discussion and um, she said, well, what should we do next? And I said, well, I don't know. And she said, well, I know you love dogs. So have, and actually she is a, a great cat owner and a cat lover, my editor. And um, she said, how about dogs? And I said, well, I'm not sure because I, you know, as we know, there have been a lot of books written about dogs and often the subjects that I've done have been quite obscure, actually. You know, I, I wrote a book about discovery of the color mauve, which was the first artificial dye. And, you know, those kind of things. And, and no one had written about a book like that before. So I kind of thought, well, I was, you know, quite like to do things that other people haven't done, perhaps. So we let that lie for a bit. And then a couple of things happened. One is that there was a dog cafe that opened up uh, very near us, um, which I kind of thought, okay, well, this, when it opened up, it was called Dandies. And I thought when Dandies opened up, uh, this was basically like a cafe that's going to be dog friendly, like you get dog friendly restaurants or pubs and hotels. But it turned out, no, this was a cafe for dogs and the dog menu was much much bigger than the human menu so you could go and eat with your dog but the dog was you know the person who would basically um wow take you there it was quite the hamster heat so the idea it was like a treat i suppose you would take your dog there on on their birthday or whatever and i thought okay well this is interesting this is like a new development and then the other thing which i talk a little bit about in the book is also um the idea that you could then you could now take your dog to the cinema. So pre-COVID, the, the book, you know, was 90% written pre-COVID. And the idea was that you could go to a cinema in South London with your dog. And so uh, they would show dog-related films. So that would be, you know, Lady and the Tramp or Isle of Dogs or whatever it was. And they would keep the lights a little bit higher than they would would normally have because otherwise the dogs might get scared or I don't know you know feel didn't quite know what was going on they would keep the volume of the film down a bit and the dogs would sit next to you and get treats you know dog treats but you would have your popcorn they would have their popcorn I'm afraid and that and I thought okay so what's going on here and I went to one of these in South London and it was a perfectly pleasant experience apart from the fact that Ludo got incredibly bored after a quarter of an hour because why wouldn't you and you know and so we I think we had to, had to leave and I think we saw Rocket Man the Elton John biopic and that was the thing that made me think okay now who's in charge here who's who's sort of uh, you know have we gone too far basically in our not only molly coddling of dogs but also in our in 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 the way that actually what we're doing is giving dogs a lifestyle that's actually a human lifestyle. And is this against, I think the writer Alexandra Horowitz called it, is it against the dogness of dogs? In other words, are we, are we creating, are we making too much in our own image? And then obviously that made me think about how we've treated dogs over the centuries, how they live, how they die, you know, all those kind of things. And I mean, I felt slightly hypocritical at certain points when I was writing the book because you know I would I would take the mickey out of um, you know I went to Crufts and I went to another big show that we have in the UK called Discover Dogs where 
you, which is actually great. And the Crufts is very much a show and, and lots of merchandise. And um, Discover Dogs, they have like a, a basically a little enclosure or a little sort of kennel type area for pretty much every dog that one might be interested in, you know, every every breed that, that one could, you know, ask the owners about and, and, and say, what well, are the issues with, with this breed and, you know, everything else. And that's great. So more educational than crafts in the world. But there is a huge amount of dog crap on sale, which is basically more for the owners than for the dogs. There's no question. But I'm as guilty as anyone. Like, you know, buy a very expensive dog bed. I thought, you know, dog bed with, like, memory foam and, you know, all those kind of things. And then that got me thinking about, I mean, we shouldn't really do it because you can't evaluate a dog in monetary terms. But the amount of the amount of I was spending on dog insurance, you know, just pet insurance, basically, towards the end was sort of way more than I had on my own insurance. You know, it's sort of which is kind of great in a way because it shows love. And that's, you know, the, the thing that comes out of the research that I did and the reading that I did and talking to people is so obvious, ultimately. The human-dog relationship began as a kind of symbiotic thing. They, they, I say in the book, they exploited a kind of, you know, a niche. And the niche was, was kind of us. Wherever we lived, you know, be it in, in caves originally and beyond that, any dwelling place that we had. But the answer to why we do this is love. And that's the good thing. And I didn't really want to go into the darker side of our relationship with dogs partly because i think because i would find it too painful but also because i i thought well i don't want to split the book i, I want the book to be like 90 percent love and 10 percent I, I would look at the darker side and, and one other element of the darker side which i found extraordinary which i didn't know about which is the glory of beginning you know any book you kind of think oh well i know half the story but then you discover the other half of the story is is what happened in britain the beginning of the Second World War, there are instructions, not orders, but instructions from the government in the UK saying, uh, we are now going to face privations. We are now going to have a hard time. Um, and this was before official rationing, but people could see things were coming. And we obviously had a lot of people sort of moving away, and then a lot of men went to war. And what happened was a lot of people thought I can no longer afford to feed my dog and my dog cannot be a priority in my life. And a, a dog, my dog may get bombed and I couldn't bear that. So a huge amount, I mean, uh, hundreds of thousands of people put their dogs down or brought them to the vet to be put down. The beginning of the war as, as, a, as a caution. And now we would think, well, you know, what would be a better companion during times of, of you know sort of extreme stress and worry than having a dog but at that time uh, a dog was sort of too much and people were thinking of their budgets maybe we can't afford it so rather than have a slow de decline which I think a lot of people said happened during the first world war where dogs just weren't fed properly and were neglected and maybe their owners had to move away and they couldn't take their dogs and all these kind of restrictions happened and maybe men went to war, women went to work, so who was going to look after the dog, all those kind of things. And we lost, you know, as I said, a ridiculous amount. And, and that's what I said about, you know, it works against um, the great British kind of dog owners 
sort of sort of almost a myth that we were the greatest lavas of dog, and yet we proved that love by by pulling them down rather than let them suffer through what you know even early on was actually looking like it was going to be a pretty a pretty prolonged uh, war. Then I kind of thought, kind of dog cemeteries. No, I wanted to ask you about Hyde Park. Yeah, I didn't know this existed at all. So I had cycled through. I'm a Chelsea football club fan for my, my sins. And every home game, we used to cycle through Hyde Park. And just at the, the edge of the park, the northern edge of the park, as you enter the road, in, if your listeners know London, it's called Bayswater Road, there is a, a kind of gamekeeper's lodge, old school. And I always kind of thought, well, this is interesting. Who lives in Hyde Park? And I found this out. And I, it, it was, it was the, the person in Victorian times who used to run a little dog, a dog cemetery, or began as a little dog cemetery. And then it began as a, uh, it expanded and expanded and expanded. And it's an extraordinary thing. Now you can only get to it at, really on a guided tour but they they run these tours every um you know once a month or so and um there is uh, it's part of a tour about that animals the history of animals in Hyde Park and it it ends up with uh you unlocking this key to this incredible place so it began I suppose in the 1870s 1880s and there are um, I think I, in the book I call it the, the, two, the, the tombstones, the gravestones are the size of a large menu in an Italian restaurant. So I suppose they were, they're the sort of size of, I'm now looking at my, you know, my desktop computer screen, 24 inches, about that kind of thing, uh, size. And um, they have the most fabulous descriptions on the, on the gravestones. I mean, I've got my I've, I've got the book here and, and I say, um, here are memorials to Turk, little Nora, darling Sammy, dear little Minnie, sweet little Leo, to dear little Josie, one of them proclaims, in loving gratitude for his sweet affection until we meet again. And then 10 feet, feet away, there's one that says, in loving memory of Chum, my faithful and loving poodle, and then to my own Bob, for five years, a beloved and devoted companion of Mr. F.M. Dyken. And it's um, five years, that's not a long life. And then I say, the Victorians knew how to do these things well, these agonies of hindsight, but the intervening years have not been kind to the inscriptions on the stones and the fading and crumbling makes interpretation tricky. But one can still make out scamp run over 29th September 1894 in loving memory of dear Chin Chin a perfect dog in memory of my darling little dog Pickles who died on January 31st 1914 my faithful little friend and companion and and the names are interesting because I talked at the beginning of the book about how we increasingly call our names our dogs with human names now you know Max and Bella the, the, these are names that we would call our own kids. Sure. Whereas in the past, as was clear from the Victorian cemetery as well, they uh, were the classic names, old names like Fido and Rex, which had a Latin connection with being faithful or being, you know, the king. Or... And there was one which I loved, 
where there, um, there was a name, uh, an owner, uh, and called their dog Scum. And I thought, that's Scum. great. That's <laughs> Poor dog. <laughs> yeah, but obviously loved them enough to have a memorial in, in, in Hyde Park. That is incredible, isn't it? A memorial in Hyde yeah. Park going way back. And there's a great chapter, Dogs Will Heal. I recently went to have a filling in my teeth at the dentist. In, and, and basically, she, the main dentist there, the woman who runs the practice, basically um, now has a dog which she brings in and is a great comfort. You know, as we all know, the dentist is not usually the most pleasant experience, especially if you know you're going to have, you know, a, an instrument drilling into you. And so um, kind of think that's so great, you know, in reception to have a dog to calm your nerves. And again, you know, it goes back to what we were saying before, someone who kind of actually, you know, you put your attention on the dog rather than on yourself. And that's so great. And yeah, that, that I loved writing that chapter. So I, I spent a day... At a, 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 on a cancer ward uh, at a hospital near me um, and there was a dog a uh, Welsh collie uh, sorry, a border, border collie called uh, Bryn and he was a sort of extraordinary now collies as we know are quite boisterous dogs they're not, they're not little calming things and yet just the patients were so happy for Bryn to uh, hop up on their beds and calm them when they were maybe having transfusions or having some sort of chemotherapy treatment. Again, you know, really not a pleasant experience, but having that dog there uh, to kind of pet or just having that presence or just having eye, the eye candy of a dog, you know, like bouncing around, just, just gave them a huge amount of joy. And the, 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 the things that people wrote on the, on the board you know, like a, a sort of, um, you know, a report of their experience or whatever, like a little diary of their experience. All of them said how much they loved meeting Grin and coming in on a Wednesday, I think it was, you know, when Grin was there was the, the highlight. And they all tried to get appointments on a Wednesday because they knew Grin would be in and all that stuff. And actually Grin was owned by one of the uh, specialists on the ward and who, who um, knew that Grin would be great. And, and Grin seemed to enjoy, enjoy it as well, yeah, as much as one could tell. Um, and that goes way back. So, um, uh, you know, Charles Darwin kind of recognised how much of a comfort a dog could be. And Charles Dickens said he reported in, in one of his journals of a dog called Poodles, who was not a poodle, around an East End, I think it was a, it was a poor house. Uh, basically, again, a sort of a, a dog just provided a huge amount of comfort to the people in there so so this isn't a new thing we've realized I and mean, obviously now we employ dogs in in far more caring ways you know we i don't think there's a university uh in the car country which doesn't have a dog during coming during exam time now to come nurse they you know they get a feeling that they're doing something worthwhile as well and, and, and you know vast majority of these dogs are going to be incredibly well rewarded with a huge amount of love and and care and, and looked after, you know, and hopefully they'll get lots of treats as well. So it's a, it's, it's a, <laughs> a good, it's a good quid pro quo. What's your knowledge about evolution from the grey wolf? Is that what you've discovered with your own research? Yeah, I think 
we don't know the timing of it really uh, people you know the estimates of, of when the the first sort of what you might call the ancient domestication between dogs and, and, and humans began anything like 10,000 to 40,000 years ago this and there's no concrete evidence I mean we do keep on finding older and older examples but what's interesting is the way that over thousands of years uh, certain tweaks in the dog genome have meant that that the dogs have, have, have kind of changed their the, the way they look at us there's more of a kind of childlike element you know uh, recently a, um, a scientist found that there is a particular muscle in a, a dog's eye that doesn't exist in a wolf's eye where they they can become a slightly cuter animal and they raise their eyebrow in a certain way which I, I think in the book I call the sort of Princess Diana look which is a slightly cock-headed kind of thing looking quite cute and um, there's also this idea of kind of which a wolf never had of a you know you show a dog will show guilt uh, not because they've necessarily done something bad but because they, they if you reprimand a dog a dog will maybe put its tail between its legs and hang its head. And all those kind of things developed over thousands of years, sort of to please us uh, as well. You know, we know how much dogs sort of want to be loved in the main. I think in 2005, uh, the, the first full human dog genome chain. And I went to actually to, to, to talk to a few people at the, at the Broad Institute in uh, Harvard, where basically they they are doing unbelievably interesting and important work into the dog GE genome and as it relates to other dogs and also as it relates to us. So the thinking is that uh, we can both help each other in terms of diseases. As we know, dogs have dogs and humans have, have carry a, a very similar frailty towards a lot of big illnesses, cancer being obviously the leading one. So there's a lot of cross-correlation um, now going on, which will definitely help us in the future, look, looking at how similar our, our, our G genes are with dogs and how, how certain dogs uh, have certain, uh, you know, certain weaknesses to certain illnesses, which we talked about a little bit, you know, with Ludo and, and hip dysplasia and Labradors and then other dogs have, you know, and so, so there's a lot of interest uh, at the moment going in that. And that's, that's, absolutely at the granular genetic level, looking at what genes switch on, switch off with breeds and, and then also with humans. So that's sort of the end of the chain. That's the end of, 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 of uh, you know, the, of the saga of us going back, let's say 40,000 uh, years. And the first evidence of our relationship, I suppose goes back thousands of years to, to uh, when we were buried when we were buried with dogs, which, you know, didn't sort of, yes, I suppose cats as well, but that sort of, that's a sort of incredibly interesting and powerful image that we wanted to be buried with our dogs in a way we wouldn't be with uh, other animals. And then the first artistic evidence, I think, goes back uh, 6,000 years to uh, caves in Saudi Arabia, where we found in the last 10 years or so, um, some incredible dog art where there would be chalk drawings of, of all sorts of animals, but certainly dogs on leads. And that's 
a very important thing as well. So, so dogs were, were, were not just running wild, but were so much part of our domestic setup and our personal setup that they were actually, uh, you know, they, 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 we kept them close by. But we're discovering more and more. So it's not a, you know, it's, uh, I mean, that's the wonder of science, of course. It's not a finite tale. It's, it, you know, it, it goes on and theories that, that we thought existed in the past you know, prove not to be true, although some prove to be true as well. So I talk a little bit in the book about Charles Darwin and how he kind of, although he didn't write that much about the, the human-dog bond in, in, in scientific terms, the way he would look at the Galapagos Islands or finches or seedlings or whatever, he wrote about it in, in, a, in a more anecdotal way. But he also got a lot of things right. The things that I really like about Darwin is that he, he, he defined a new term for a dog, which was called a hothouse face. And a hothouse face, he found, I think his dog, he had a terrier called Polly. He had lots of dogs, actually. But I think one of them, one of his favourites who, you know, like all riders sort of at their feet when they're, when they're riding. Um, he, um, he detected that when he left, the, when Darwin left the house, Polly would follow him and it would be one of two things. He would, they would either be going for a walk, which would be great, Polly would be like to, or very soon after we left the house, Darwin would sort of divert himself into the hothouse to look at his seedlings. And the dog was so disappointed that he actually could detect this face of disappointment, <laughs> uh, which we call the hothouse face in a dog. And we sort of know that as well. <laughs> that is you know, brilliant. You a lead. Yeah, if, if for some reason you rattle a lead at home and you, and you have to change your plans and you have to put the lead back on the hook, then, uh, you know, dogs, dogs you, you know they're not best pleased with you. You're going to get the hothouse face. Exactly. That's sensational. <laughs> Big question for you. How did Ludo get his name? Oh gosh, well, I wish I could. I wish I'd recorded that conversation because inevitably, you know, as I said at the beginning, there were kids involved, um, and so they basically, I think, had the final, final say. And we went through. It must have been a hundred different names, and I came up with silly names and serious names, and my wife Justine did as well. So the answer is I don't know, but it, it sort of came as a, you know, it was a bit like Wordle, maybe, you know, the idea that you, you, you think you've got something at the beginning and then it gets, maybe Wordle isn't a bad analogy because I think maybe I wanted to call him Cluedo, then it got knocked down to Ludo, but he's not, he's not short, he's not short for anything, Ludo isn't short, you know, Ludovic or anything. But it also, obviously, when you're looking, you know, I, I make fun of this in the book, I kind of say, you know, you want, you want a name that you're not embarrassed calling. You know, in, in, in uh, obviously, you want a name that they will recognise as their name. So it's always a short name is good, you know, isn't going to get all the other dogs running. So maybe John is the way forward. Then that would become Jono or something, and inevitably. And then, so Luda was one name, but then we have, you know, inevitably you know, pet names for a pet, you know, so they become, he became also, for a while he became Lucy, he'd chase switch gender in our minds for some reason we don't know about. 
And then two people called, started, maybe someone that got his name wrong called him Lucy, then we started calling him Lucy, where he was fairly happy about. <laughs> um, anyway, you know, I'm sure there's very, very few dogs who have a dog's name and they only call them by that name. Simon, this has been incredible having you on as the author of one of my favourite dog books, Dog's Best Friend, A Brief History of an Unbreakable Bond. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, well, John, I mean, thank you so much for asking me on. Who, who does not like talking about dogs and especially their, their own dogs? So uh, it's been a pleasure.